Hey y'all, welcome back to Life Support Podcast. Thanks for listening. We have our guest Lori Strand here today to talk to us about building resilient communities. But before we get started, just a quick reminder to hit that subscribe button or like us on Facebook, the Gram, TikTok, or whatever these kids are using nowadays. Um, so with that, Lori, can you please introduce yourself, who you are, what you like to do when you're working or not working, and your pronouns, where you are, that kind of thing? Uh, so Lori Strand, I um, am a born and raised Idaho girl, um, left for a period of time and and went, went and visited some other Intermountain West states, but um, I am now in Haley, Idaho. And um, I live here with my family and fur fur babies and and bonus children. I have two bonus children and and two two animals. Um, my life consists of a, a lot of fun. I would say exploring the mountains where we live is what brings me the most joy and gets me through the most challenging times. Um, I know we've experienced a lot of cold weather here lately, so I would say my wood stove and my books and puzzles have also brought me a great amount of joy and really love being able to do that and ski in our hills. And um, yeah, so that's that's who I am outside of. I love practicing all sorts of different kinds of um, athletic practices, a big part of my life as well. Wonderful. And can you tell me a little bit more about what, what you do professionally and really what, what resiliency is in, in that similar vein? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I forgot to share my pronouns, my pronoun and preferred pronouns are she, her. So just wanted to put that in there as well. Um, yeah. So man, resiliency, it's like the name of my business, right? Is resiliency rising and, and the model that I feel really passionate about teaching is, is called the community resiliency model or the trauma resiliency model. Um, and every time I'm asked like what that word means, I still kind of like get stumped, um, and really actually take a lot of time thinking about it because I think it's a word that's just thrown around a a lot. And so, I always want to be like, God, but it's such a powerful word and wanting to make sure that it kind of retains its power. And whenever I do workshops or trainings in the, and this was through my training is we always talk about what does that word mean, right? Because in some cultures or through some experiences, that word is not a, is not a positive term, right? I remember hearing it a lot used in the pandemic where I spent a lot of my, um, career years in public education and school-based mental health. And I would hear a lot of people say kids are really resilient, right? Which to me was just a way of adults saying like, we don't know what to do. So hopefully they'll be fine, right? Or we hear it maybe in disenfranchised communities or um, communities um, that don't have as much access, right? Like that humans are resilient, right? Well, sometimes people don't have a choice to be resilient or not, right? Like I have a choice on using skills and being resilient because I'm not worried about my safety most days when I walk out the door, right? Other people, that's not a choice. So just want to be really clear that not everybody has a great experience with that word. Um, so when I think about the word, though, in its most powerful term, or if we can give it back some of its power, um, you know, people often say it's like bouncing back. That's what I hear a lot of, like this term bouncing back. And I had a, actually a middle school kid say to me one day, but what if it's bouncing forward? Because why would I want to bounce back after I've gone through something? And I like love that image as well. 
Um, because we don't necessarily, we're not going to bounce back to a prior form, right? We're going to be bouncing into something different. I love this um, definition by this woman named Elena Aguilar, where she says that it's a way of being that allows us to bounce forward, I'm going to say, quickly from adversity and stronger than before so we can fulfill our purpose in life, right? And I love that as well. Um, I love anything that we can kind of just think about. How does it also include suffering, right? Because in that statement, it doesn't say everything is fine. It says, how do I bounce forward and recover? And I always want to be really clear, too, that the definitions that I work from include individual and collective group suffering. Because without that, right, I don't have an ability to bounce forward or to um, rise above. You told us what resiliency is um, for you and kind of how you make that definition. Um, what What is your practice with um, resiliency? What What is How do you um, interact with resiliency day to day? I guess what is resiliency rising? Thank you. I know you answer, uh, you asked that question, and I think I only I could only answer one question at a time, I guess. Um, yeah, so a couple of different things. I do have a private practice where I meet individually um, a couple of days of a week, and I use the uh, trauma resiliency model, which is um, a model that's designed to help us reprocess trauma uh, in a really safe and manageable way that includes a huge amount of skill building on the front end, right? So when we reprocess things, a lot of times um, uh, trauma or stress can get trapped in our bodies, meaning the body has memory of it, but maybe the the mind doesn't. And that can really cause some some significant challenges in life. And so we always want to set people up with lots of tools in order to um, learn how to balance their nervous system on a day-to-day basis to be able to know calming strategies before we ever would enter into um, any sort of trauma work, right? It's all about safety and doing no harm. And that's why I love this model so much is it it really is about offering people the tools to um, leave therapy, right? Um, I believe good therapy has an end and expiration as well, even if you need check-ins. But um, I think that that's our main focus is how do we know when we... um, are ready to kind of transition into a different relationship. So do that a couple of days a week. I really love it. Um, I work with a lot of different populations, um, but mainly now have been focusing on um, adults. Um, I work with quite a few first responders and really enjoy that work in helping um, those people that are in helping professions stay in the helping professions with skills and ways to navigate um, difficulties, big difficulties in life. One of my other focuses um, really is in um, the community model, right? So the community resiliency model is a model designed for anyone and everyone. So there's, I'm a teacher in it, but there's nurses and teachers and business people that are trained and are teachers of the model as well. And the reason I love this model so much is because there aren't just clinicians everywhere that we can access. Um, and I, I always want to say this really carefully that, and I don't believe that we're the answer to everything, right? I think we need community interventions where people are speaking a common language about the impacts of stress and trauma. 
and that people have that understanding. So on our day-to-day conversations with one another or how we understand those impacts, we can actually be supporting healing in one another just in our everyday conversations. One of, another piece with Resiliency Rising is really working into um, the business world, as we've seen through the mass resignation, as we've seen employees increasingly struggling with depression and anxiety um, coming out of our pandemic and really like wrestling with, am I happy here? What does this all mean exactly? They don't just want you know, your basic 401k and health insurance, they want to know that employers care about them as a human and care about their families, um, well-being, um, emotionally and physically, um, and not just that they have retirement, because we have to be able to get to retirement <laughs> in order to even use that. Right. And so I think that employers and I think employees are ready for alternative benefits that include a holistic approach. Um And I think employers um, need strategies, new strategies that include uh, creative ways to increase uh, retention and morale and communication and relationships. Um, And so that is uh, another piece that I'm really wanting, that I am focusing a lot on as well right now. Talking about employers, I mean, even people in general, right? Like, so kids, they spend most of their time in schools. We as employees spend most of our times with our employers, right? What can these organizations do to make their staff or residents, if you will, um, their people, their their, their folks, um, make their lives better? Um, So you kind of got started going down the path of employers, but not only employers, but schools as well, right? Uh Uh-huh. I think more than anything, so I'll address the schools probably first, and then I'll go back to businesses. I think schools are so interesting right now um, because you can't, I love, like, you can't get blood from a rock, right? And I think we're in this situation where there is just feels like there's no capacity right now. And I think um, even, like, I notice an aversion to that word self-care after it was overused so much during the pandemic that I I have a response to it now, right? Where I'm trying to figure out another word that I don't have to it. But I think that is pervasive in education right now, which is one, I don't have anything else that I can give you, right? I'm I'm totally maxed. I don't have support and they don't. You know, like even if you have a really wonderful administration team and an awesome superintendent and great teachers, if you can't get a substitute when you're sick, real hard to feel supportive in that environment. Right. So there's that piece. And then we often say, but yeah, we want to offer something just for you. Right. And even that can feel overwhelming. So I think choice when we talk about, you know, people love to throw around this term of like, this is a safe space or you can, you know, come into the space and feel safe. Well, we can never say that because that like is so individualistic. So I think we provide choice as much as possible. And within this model, one of the things I love about it and Elaine miller Karras, the creator of this model, was so passionate about this concept of choice that we always just offer something and then we let people decide what to do. And I think with this model, uh, we often or lots of things in education come from an administrative standpoint, even with the best of intentions, right? We want you to do this because this will be good for you. Well, 
how many times did our parents say that to us and how often do we never do that, right? Or probably still today, do we have a partner in our life that says, you should really meditate or why don't you work out in the morning? And how often when we just hear that, do we push back? So how do we in employing, even in the business world or in the education world, how do we just start bringing choice back into some things? Instead of everything being mandated, how do we say, here's an offering for you, right? We think it could be beneficial. Why don't you see for yourself, right? How do we begin doing that like kind of across the board? Um, I guess that would be like the best way to answer that question for me in this moment. Yeah, I, I think that that really probably resonates for a lot of people, you know, coming out of, um, you know, some, some more of the intense moments of the pandemic, you know, whether it was work stress or having your kids at home and just uh, not not having that support and choice um, when when it comes down to, you know, living your life as a part of a community, not just kind of an isolation. Um, so... I guess for me, one one thing that comes up is, um, you know, you can label something as resilient or a community is thriving, but the um, kind of imagery of that is really powerful. How how would you describe um, a community or a community system that's really resilient and thriving um, in this model? I was I was thinking about that this morning, um, and I uh, there's a handful of things, right? So it depends on what we're defining as community, right? It could mean so many different things. Um, so I will I will talk as um, broadly as I can. We know through research, right, that the things that happen to us have long term health impacts. Okay, so if we're living in pervasive stress constantly, um, if we have experienced challenging childhoods, um, if we are in unsafe home environments, we have um, down the road or currently health issues, right? Whether that's increase in obesity, depression, rates of suicide, anxiety, heart disease, the list goes on, right? So this is not just a human failing, right? This is a public health issue that we need to be able to connect the dots to, right? So I'd say that's part one is public health in general, right? And how do we get from the mayor across town to the person that works at a gas station, the bartender, or the senior citizen that gets visitations only from Meals on Wheels, right? So how do we, across the board, start creating language about stress and trauma on the nervous system how do we offer tools that can be ma manageable, accessible, understandable, relatable to people? And then that's just kind of like individualistic, right? Really kind of getting people. So, but however, when I then work within an organization who looks at, okay, I look at a human from if Rachel lashes out at me one day, right? Or lashes out. Again, I'm not talking about people harming one another, but if she's upset about something, and I can notice it's not a personal thing, right? I just know that Rachel, we call it bumping out of our resilient zone, right? Bumping out of that place we feel like our best self. I'm not going to say Rachel is crazy or there's something wrong with her. I can look at Rachel as a human and say like, whoa, I want to understand what just happened there and be able to meet her, right? Or offer compassion or support in whatever way I can. And because I know that within my organization, that is um, valued, that I have policies and procedures that support that, right? 
that I have HR departments and administration that support whole people, right? It's going to be okay to do that. I'm going to know that that can be okay. So, right, all those things I just said, a lot, right? So that also adds in how do those pieces fit together? There's a lot there, of course, right? But when we know across the board also, as an individual, what are individual strengths within my organization or my community? What are my weaknesses in my organization or community? I can build around that as well. Same as an individual and an organization or community-wide, right? And I can go to an example of fires, right? In my community, we often deal with forest fires. And how often do I see people come together in the most beautiful ways, right? Who can support each other in different ways? That's a much larger picture, right? But my passion is to how do we start with all of the individuals in all of these places, right? Getting on the same page, building stronger families, building um, supports. And so hopefully we don't ever have to get you know, shut into our homes again. But when we do, our our child abuse rates don't go up, right? Because we have tools set in place that can support people who are struggling. I love some of the description kind of from the micro to the macro level. And to me, you know, your description of like bouncing out of that resilience and your your reaction or kind of your reactivity when somebody's feeling those feelings, having those behaviors. Um, to me, it thinks, makes me think a lot about um, I think for a lot of us, that's kind of the expectation um, that we have of the relationships within our homes. And that's definitely um, where we spend a lot of time, but we spend so much time, you know, in our second or our third place. Totally makes sense to me when you're talking about that, that that those are the expectations we should have of those relationships too. Um, not only the expectations, but the systems to support those expectations. Can you talk about... Um some of the work that you do to build healthy and thriving communities? I think you've touched on a little bit, um, but what do you do specifically to help these um, communities? Yeah. So I can give a couple of different examples. Um, I can start with like, um, I'm working with a a ski patrol in Idaho. I won't say them because I didn't ask permission to share. I don't, I think they'd be okay, but um, Right. Who and and ski patrollers are first responders. Right. So people often forget that they just think like ski patrollers, like patrolling the hill and making sure if someone, you know, like avalanche control or um, but they are first responders on on scenes. And um, and they are often dealing with uh, frustrated people, lost people, scared people. Right. And it can get really overwhelming. And so just within, you know, one ski patrol, um, there's this really awesome organization called the Responder Alliance that I try to, you know, they do a lot of um, really great work with uh, uh, setting really great foundations for good, um, I'd say, practices for first responders. And then I get to bring the nervous system response piece in and kind of that normalizing the the human experience, right, that we all experience stress and trauma. We all experience um feeling bumped out of our our best self, that high zone or that low zone. And it can often happen more when we have day after day after day, right, of kind of that feeling of relentlessness, especially within a season. So, you know, working with a, a ski patrol is, a, is a really fantastic, right? Because they not only get to use the skills when they are debriefing a scenario, right? How can they debrief something that was really challenging and hard in a way that doesn't re-traumatize each other, right? So we get to teach the art of storytelling in a way that 
um, supports um, not secondary PTSD or really um, paving pathways of trauma, which is can often be um, what happens when we retell stories that are are really intense. So just in that case, in that scenario, right, you do a little bit of education around nervous systems, how to storytell. You've already impacted potentially people receiving secondary PTSD, not just in their workplace either, right? How do they tell stories and when they leave and go home and talk, and talk to their partners, right, about sort of some of these bigger, heavier things? So that could be one example. I would say like working in school communities is another one, right? So when we um, when we start to offer choice to teachers about wanting to um, learn some of these skills, you know, I've heard I've heard teachers say things like it's really hard to feel excited about PD offering sometimes, but like I actually feel like with this uh, model, I can keep kids in my classroom and I don't have to always send them to the counselor. Like I'm not always having to be like I can't handle this, right? I need someone else. And that was really awesome to hear. Again, it's the power of the model um, and these skills. So I think the more that you have that, right, you create more confident teachers. Um, I often have heard, too, from first responders that they're um, really increasing in the amount of mental health calls, right? And so what really can impact secondary post-traumatic stress, right, is the feeling of hopelessness and not being able to help within your profession, right, or not having the supports you need. Right. So offering some ways that one, they use the skills for themselves when they're on call, when they are being able to reprocess something with a coworker. But three, they have the skills to ask questions to support a client or a um, I'm not sure. I don't remember what they would call, but the person that they're serving, right, their nervous system at the same time. So it's like this full kind of circle in that piece. Um, Again, my hopes are are high and they're really big and I want to shoot for the stars in thinking that once we have organizations, you know, that are that are on board, I have an organization that I work here with every single person in the entire organization that's that's trained, right? And they do follow-ups too. And so their staff meetings start with resiliency pauses. How do we make sure that we are in our resilience zone? How do we make sure that our nervous systems are regulated so that when we go into a hard conversation, right? People aren't leaving or checking out because the content gets too much. Um, and that's another piece. We don't, we want people to stay engaged in life. And oftentimes we disengage from life when our nervous systems are disrupted. Thank you for um, your time, Lori. Thank you for the work that you do. And um, thank you for sharing just really your thought leadership in this area and looking forward to many more opportunities to collaborate with you. Thanks, Rachel. Really appreciate you both. Thank you, Jen. Life Support is a podcast developed by CWHO with the support of the ISOS grant, where we talk to providers, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. This podcast music is written and performed by Anthony Leon. The show is also produced by Anthony. For more information, visit us on the web at seehu.org and remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks, everybody.